0: I'm Frederick Garten and I'm the filmmaker. And
1: I'm Leilani Parha and I'm the advocate.
0: You are the advocate. <laughs> well, summer series. This is our summer series, Leilani. How do you are you proud of being a part of a summer <laughs> series? <laughs>
1: it's great to have a summer series. I, it's not
0: exactly light fair all the
1: time though, our summer series. <laughs> Oh. we in kleptocracy and and capitalist communist China and what next, <laughs> Frederick? <laughs> I don't know. And you were filming recently in my hemisphere.
0: I was in I was out uh, filming for my new project. I was in West Virginia. Uh, one of the poorest states in the United States. Uh, And as a state that is producing a lot of oil, coal, gas, you know, like Nigeria or Angola or Russia or other countries where the people suffer and the money just floats out. So West Virginia in some way also mirrors that kind of economy, the extractive Mm. economies. Yeah. Very sweet people out there, of course. They might have a reason to be suspicious to documentary filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Somebody said, oh, you're here to make fun of us. Well, <laughs> not really, but but uh, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I met with Sarah Chase, who we've a- actually had here in, in our podcast. Sarah uh, wrote this book about corruption in America, so I mm-hmm. wanted to follow up on her. Mm-hmm. But I also met a very sweet uh, teacher who is was part of leading... A, a teacher strike a few years ago because I mean the the public money is starving so they tried to cut um, the health policies of the teachers and other people who worked in school which is like horrible terrible terrible (laughs) but overall a very beautiful state so Mm -hmm. I I mean forests and I mean extremely beautiful place Mm, sounds amazing I, I was happy to be there but today we're going we're going to dive into our summer series and we talked to a friend of yours and mine uh, in in London Anna Minton. So tell me about Anna Minton.
1: Well, Anna Minton has uh is well known for having written a book called Big Capital uh about the financialization of housing in London and uh a, an amazing and succinct book. Um, that certainly provoked a lot of conversations and uh, was highly regarded. And she's a big thinker on big, big things. Mm.
0: Um, So we called her to talk about the release of the Pandora Papers. So that's like, there is this kind of conglomerate of uh, investigative journalists around Europe and and also with the U.S. connection um, that they, together they... Help to sort out leaked material that they get and and every time there is a leak like that these you we can see uh, patterns we can see how the most powerful operate in many ways, and it 's always quite upsetting, but already then when we did this, we talked about why doesn 't these leaks change more than they do? How do you see that lelani
1: mm. It is amazing. I I sometimes wonder if it just seems all so far away and hard to um the that the the amount of money that we're talking about that that travels afar the fact that it's sort of in the air it yeah, there's something unt- intangible about it I think. It seems really big to people and and um and yet it's having such a immediate effect on people around the world i mean yeah. kleptocracy right
0: um, uh, and and uh, sarah chase that i mentioned she she talks about kleptocracy as uh, also as an as a network yes. of kind of interlinked in many ways and and she also talked about the hydra if you cut off of a head of a hydra a new will will grow back, grow back somewhere mm-hmm. else so it's in some way when those leaks are taking down one or two politicians or one or two uh, oligarchs somewhere, the system will just keep going. So Mm -hmm. if we really want to change the system, we need to look much deeper into the the structure and the patterns of this. And that's actually something I'm trying to do. But let's listen to to Anna uh, to see what she thinks about the Pandora Papers and why we see this coming up over and over again.
2: You know, the news breaks, it takes over The Guardian, it's front of uh, the BBC for a couple of days, and yet we have this feeling that it's nothing new. Actually, this is the third mega-leak of this kind. First of all, we had the Panama Papers, then we had the Paradise Papers, and now it's the Pandora Papers. And every time it comes out, there's, you know, there's a lot of shock a noise and it's appalling and some high profile politicians and public figures uh, are are shamed and embarrassed. Uh, and then sometimes there are government noises that, you know, actually, we're going to do something about this. Um, as happened, uh, particularly after the Panama Papers. David Cameron had a big conference to to, to regulate, um, you know, what was going on in London, and he was going to shine a light, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, and actually, nothing happened, you know, and the legislation that the Conservative government had um, put into place, you know, it never came on to the statute books. So what's concerning for me is that actually you know these revelations come out again and again and they'll come out again you know and each time they are if anything more shocking you know the latest revelations in the Pandora Papers are about so many high-profile politicians and you know heads of state and huge donors to to the British Conservative Party and yet not much happens And sad to say, in London, I think that in the current political context, it's even less likely to happen in our our post-Brexit context, where every indication from the government has been actually that the city of London wishes to be, to use a euphemism, more competitive than before, by which they mean actually they're going to continue to try to attract this kind of money. And I mean, of course, Britain is a huge player uh, behind this uh, 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 wealth industry. Um, The majority of companies linked to the Pandora Papers, two thirds of companies of, I think, 956 uh, companies uh, which, which were exposed, two thirds of those actually are in the British Virgin Islands. So British offshore tax havens and the city of london itself actually right at the centre of all of this
0: mm. it's i know we in at every league we talk about the names that drop out and this time it was the biggest thing was of course the, the tony and sherry blair who didn't do anything criminal but they they bought a company in the british virgin islands which then that was like a house following with it, and as we saw in Push, there is a lot of houses in London owned from tax havens, where you don't really know who owns them, and many of them stand empty. That's something we showed in Push, which of course means it's, I mean, it's it's like it's kind of insane to see. But what? But we talk a little bit about these big names, but but we don't talk so much about is the wealth management industry. So I think I'm happy that you mentioned it, because London. I mean, also in PUSH, we had uh, Roberto Saviano and he said London is the, the capital of criminal money. It's like that's where it's, it is the biggest tax haven of all in some way, because it's also most of the tax havens are run from London. The, the lawyers, the accountants and all these people. So do you, is that, do you think that we are again missing to look into those kind of the facilitators?
2: Absolutely. And not only that, wealth management, it's, it's actually high status. You know, to, to say that you work in wealth management is not considered to be in any sense a dirty word. You know, if you were to say I work for an offshore tax haven, you know, eyebrows might be raised. But wealth management... It brings with it a whole different host of associations. So I think you know the mainstream perception of wealth management is that it's a really positive thing. I mean, you know, it's really good that London and and the UK are at the centre of this, you know, multi billion pound industry. It's bringing it's bringing capital into the country, and that's going to benefit. Uh, uh, the rest of the city, the rest of the country. Of course, you know, it doesn't work like that at all. That's a, that's a complete fallacy that this money actually will be uh, uh, distributed in a, in, a, in an equitable fashion. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work remotely like that. But actually, you know, there's a misconception about what wealth management is, you know, and that it is essentially the servicing of um, offshore tax havens, secretive anonymous companies, uh, uh, with, with well, as you say, criminal money, that it's at the centre of a huge money laundering operation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I find it quite fascinating that the UK, which we, I mean, you know, I come from a Commonwealth country. We look to the mother country for all sorts of things. We have a common law system, just like the UK. Um, the UK is always sort of, I don't know, seems so proper. And to think that it's become this not just itself um, basically the facilitator of all of this corrupt flow of corrupt capital but other markets emulate the same thing that the UK does so Singapore and other countries use that very same model and structures to allow for this flow of capital so I mean I'm it, it's kind of like um I don't know, like a contradiction to me that the UK that, you know, with all of its long history of law, uh, would be at the centre of all of this. I don't know if you can explain that to us.
2: I mean, I think in simple terms, the, the image of the city of London and the UK and the rule of law, you know, I mean, in the mid 1980s, a lot of this was simply swept away. Deregulation and big Bang in one thousand nine hundred and eighty six which which was the deregulation of the financial markets you know it created a completely new city um, and at the the, the the foundations of this actually would, were, were that we would be a very low tax uh, and deregulated economy uh, with a big emphasis on a shift to to privatized services, so actually you know regulation from that point on became a dirty word. get rid of Uh, you know, all regulation that you can, a bonfire of regulations is a kind of conservative uh, mantra. So when you get rid of uh, regulation, I mean, regulation isn't a dirty word, it's actually very closely linked with the rule of law. You know, when you get rid of regulations, you create a fertile climate for this Wild West sort of um, environment that grew up um, in the city of London from the late 80s onwards. So, I mean I think you know we can also be too nostalgic about you know uh upright notions of britishness and fair play I'm I'm sure that you know there there were always sort of questions to be asked you know through our in, our contentious imperial uh, uh legacy but from the mid 80s onwards actually a very very new culture uh was created which was all about you know, getting rid of regulation and bringing in as much capital as, as we possibly could.
0: But isn't the story also that that a lot of people with money, I mean, kleptocrats, people with a lot of money from Nigeria, or from uh, from any, I mean, basically stealing money from their own people, that they, they move money into London because they feel safer. They, they feel that their money is more protected just because it is a very stable legal system so it's i mean if so i mean you have all this influx of russian money and i now saw that the saudi crown prince is buying newcastle football club and it was just like again this this flow of money into your country uh, money that should make its job in in the home country but it's actually shipped out because they feel safer
2: absolutely yeah they feel safer um, it's got this reputation you know it's it's the place of choice for essentially very large scale money laundering um, and the aspect that we haven't talked about so much yet is actually that this money goes into purchasing very, very expensive, super prime, very desirable property in the most expensive parts of London. And the London property market is one of the most expensive uh, uh, property markets in the world. And, you know, this money is having a disproportionate impact actually on property and housing throughout the city and throughout the country uh, as a whole. But actually, the property assets in themselves in London are very, very desirable. And they will retain their value because of the structure of, of the property market in, in the UK.
0: Mm. And this yeah. has a severe effect for, for people in the town.
2: Oh, well, it absolutely does. So, I mean, the, the whole sort of the myth around creating an economy which is going to attract cap- capital uh, from, um, you know, perfectly upstanding uh, as well as nefarious sources, you know, that's based on that Reaganomics notion of trickle down. It, surely it 's a good thing to bring in lots of money surely it 's a good thing to uh, be the destination and the residence of choice for the most uh, uh, the largest number of ultra high net worth individuals and billionaires in the world that that 's London today you know and the argument is well you know that can only be a good thing they 're bringing their money they 're bringing their spending power they 're creating um, you know knock on effects, but actually you know this wealth doesn't trickle down uh, as as the narrative assures us that it will and benefit uh, the poorer parts of the city and the lower income parts of the city. It does trickle down, but it displaces existing communities by raising property prices and rental prices and ensuring that lower income communities who, who originally lived there can no longer afford to do so. So they get moved out of the central parts of London to the periphery. And even now from the periphery, we're seeing, you know, very many families, many of whom I know, actually, I live in a in a zone three part of London, which is it's not exactly a suburb, but it, it's not inner London, you know, and lots of people I know who have children like I do, um, you know, who work in. Decent jobs, but not especially high earning jobs, can no longer afford to live in London. So they they move out to seaside towns, perhaps like Margate or Hastings or other cities like Bristol and Cardiff. And therefore, you experience those same pressures in those other towns and cities. So it's a whole domino effect actually around the country. So trickle down, yes, you know, trickle down does indeed trickle down, but not at all in a beneficial way, in a way where it enhances the, the pre existing inequalities.
0: Leilani, your uh, dear brother-in-law is a minister in, in the UK government, and he was for a long time also the housing minister. So, and I guess you at the family gatherings also talks about politics. How do you, how do you, what is the, what is their argument for, for keeping this system up? <laughs> you must have had this many times.
1: Um, you'd be surprised, actually, how steadfastly families can avoid controversial conversations. (laughs) Um, I'm fairly adept at doing that myself, I must say, so that I can actually enjoy my meal and my wine. Um, (laughs) that being said, I mean, I, I can't say, um... What my brother in law's justification might have been when he was uh, housing minister, but um, I have heard from um, members of the Conservative Party in the UK um, that, you know, some countries export bananas, some countries export uh, laptop computers, and other countries export finance and property and the UK happens to be the latter. And, you know, it it goes to what Anna was saying. I mean, it's this um, false narrative that it brings capital in, um, that it makes the country stronger with all this money flowing in, when Anna, as Anna said, it's just not true. And there isn't a trickle down. And even even um when i as rapporteur would sit across now i didn't do this in the uk but i've i sat across many um ministries in, uh, of finance and budgeting and i would ask them could you please explain to me what how is this productive money like how does this generate anything in your economy i was often met with blank stares they couldn't even explain back to me how it would benefit the the person that I'm meeting living in abject poverty, homelessness, or even just, you know, kind of crappy housing on the outskirts of a city. Or Um, students. Or or students, or et cetera. They couldn't explain it. And one of the things that people don't, I don't think people understand with this, these huge amounts of money. I'm often told by um, people who are really wedded to neoliberalism, Well, you know, it's just the market and and nothing these guys, mostly guys are doing not complete, not only guys, but nothing they're doing is actually illegal. It might not be in the in quote spirit of the law. But you know, using tax havens isn't illegal and buying properties that are for sale is not illegal. Sure. But first of all, when they buy properties they're not actually buying it at market rate often it the house might be up for 20 million pounds and they'll buy it for 50 million pounds because it's 50 million that they're trying to hide or get rid of or not pay taxes on and that that is a a, a clear distortion of any market insofar as a market exists right those sorts of things people don't talk about that 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 this isn't just sort of some normal tra- real estate transaction there's a whole thing going on here that that's quite other um which is
0: money laundering yeah. is this a, is this a pedagogical problem anna to explain to people why are people not more angry about this why doesn't it really uh, I mean, with, we mentioned now it's the third time we we see this happening, and I mean, if you look at some London neighborhoods, traditional ne- neighborhoods, they are totally emptied by by people now. So it's it's just this mm. money floating yep. in.
2: Yeah, and I think just to come back to Leilani's point about these um, astronomical prices that you see, which actually are for the purpose of 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 putting the, the 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 dirty money somewhere, those those ridiculous prices are then greeted in British newspapers with headlines saying, you know, most expensive penthouse apartment ever sold for you know eighty million, as if this is some really really positive thing. So. It's, it's, it's the narrative. You know, it is the strength of the rhetoric that we've been sold, which is that high prices and the influx of lots of money, regardless of where it comes from, is a really positive thing for our economy. And that's the narrative we've lived with since the 1980s. Mm. Um, you know, what can we do about that? Well, you know, we need to talk about it in different terms. And while I think that the Pandora papers and the Paradise papers and the Panapama papers, they have done incredible work because they're focused on the specifics quite often of, you know, anonymous companies and and tax deals. And it's quite complicated to sort of, you know, understand some of these structures. I mean, it's deliberately uh, extremely complicated. And the sort of the fun bits in this story are hearing about, you know, whatever celebrity or famous person has been caught up in the scandal. But with regard to the framing of the story, it's not presented... I would argue, actually, in in the right way. It's not presented as a money laundering scandal. Actually, it's presented as, you know, people avoiding tax and, you know, some very famous people caught up in that, when really, you know, what we're talking about is a far, far murkier and more problematic picture.
1: Yeah, I also, I I, I completely agree with that. I think, people have a hard time getting their head around this stuff in a way that then can be mobilized on the streets in a in a certain way although i mean i suppose occupy wall street was kind of related related to an outrage around this um one of the things that i think also anna that doesn't get talked about enough is um i think the figure is something like um 600 billion dollars every year is lost in taxes lost taxes every year that sort of globally through the use of tax havens and from a human rights point of view I mean what what we say through human rights is that governments have to use all of the their available resources to address deprivations whether it's housing deprivation health deprivation education etc and if they're allowing this tax base to just leave the country and, and find themselves in some island somewhere and then eventually into a property in the UK, they are not doing what they're supposed to do legally under international human rights law, which is to get those taxes and use those taxes in a constructive way that actually benefits the, the vast majority of the population. But I think there, I mean, these are, you know, guesstimate $600 billion, but I, I think that needs to be talked about more. What, what are the real losses here beyond just um, the pressures on the market and the, the skewing of the market? What are the tangible
0: losses? I think it's also, for me, it's like a break of the social contract because the rest of us, we pay taxes. So there's a lot of people who have to pay taxes, and then they don't. So, the, so it also destroys society in some way.
2: Well, I I completely agree with what you're saying. And, I mean, I think what I I want to say sort of very much links with that, which is actually it's about a reframing of of tax. You know, tax is another of those words, which, you know, doesn't really have very much traction. Uh, You know, in in the media, tax, uh, by apart you know i think that the idea of amazon and you know huge uh, corporates like that paying more tax has, has started to gain more t- traction but generally politically all governments are trying to outdo each other um especially the british government around you know how low taxes can can remain um you know in the media narrative around tax is is it's not a populist one to say the least you know it's a, it's it's quite similar to regulation and i think tax has to be framed in a really really different way it's not about tax it's about as you say frederick the social contract and whether or not we want to have a social contract because the consequence of not paying tax in this way is to destroy our social contract. But it's about the framing of it. And, you know, as a as a former journalist and someone who is still involved in journalism to, to some degree, you know, the media and especially the UK media has an enormous role to play in how all the issues that we've been talking about today are framed or misframed.
0: framed yeah. Language, Leilanne, we talked a lot about that language is important, and Anna, now you're lifting out a lot of very good examples of that. So we, we need to reframe our language and, and win the language to be able to also to win this debate. You mentioned Occupy Wall Street, and I don't know if they were a success or not. It became kind of complicated in the end, but we still talk about the 1%. That's something that they framed, and that—that's well, actually there. I think,
2: I think Occupy was a success to 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 a great degree, actually. In in really altering the discourse. And that's what we're talking about. Mm. And actually when the discourse can alter, then there are so many more possibilities uh, for for us to get the sorts of points we're trying to get across. Um, So, you know, it wasn't an immediate success, but actually that was huge and it's ongoing.
0: And the 1% is something we still talk about. And it is the 1% who are now, the, the Pandora papers are showing the faces of and the people who are helping the the 1% the enablers the, the wealth management people in london and other places so it's it's i think it's it's helped us a little bit to to look sharper on this
1: yeah and i think there i think there are links um, right to you know our most recent big success that the world has seen which is berlin i mean they they have really been able to um, harness uh the David and Goliath 1% versus the monopoly of Venovia and Deutsche Vonen and and others successfully with a solution attached to their banner, right? They just w- weren't just saying, you know, this is unfair, unjust. Uh they're saying, and we're going to write this, we're going to correct it, and this is how. And they managed to mobilize more than a million voters in their favor. So um, I do think um, this is a sort of cumulative thing that's happening over time. I mean, that's how change happens anyway. Nothing happens overnight. It's a cumulative. So maybe we date it to Occupy Wall Street. I don't know where we date it from, but... I actually find it amazing within my own sector. What is my sector? I don't know exactly, but human (laughs) rights, housing, Mm. how slow we've been um, to sort of galvanize around this and try to move forward. Um, You know, when I became rapporteur, the housing groups themselves were not talking about this. It's surprising, right? Like, who do you expect to talk about this? You would think the housing groups would, but. Uh, and
0: you, Leilani, your work has had an extreme impact. You, I mean, what we now hear is activists all over the world using the right framing. Housing is a human right. We, and we didn't hear this before because it was this market, market, market all the time. And you actually, by being so sharp in language, helped people to... To fight back, mm. and I think this is a, is a huge step, and, and and I think what what Anna is talking about here is also the same. We have we have to reframe.
1: I think that's right. Well, and I think I mean authors like Anna, David Madden, who wrote in defense of housing, Richard Florida, who actually um, did a whole. I don't know if people know who he is. He's an urban planner academic. Um, he did a mea culpa because he felt he had actually contributed to the kind of financialization of housing in a way. Um, a lot of people are landing that in a place where, where where radical reform is required, and human rights does offer that. So, I mean, I think I'm lucky in that, I happen to be a human rights advocate, but it's the framework itself that I think people find very appealing. Because what's it about, really? It's about the kind of societies Frederick you talk about so eloquently—the kind of societies we want to live in. Like, don't we want, as Frederick would say, I'm, "I'm here's my Frederick voice." Don't we want people to be happy? Don't we want to live in peaceful societies with <laughs> oh. with, with social inclusion? Okay, you don't say that, but
0: who's that? Yeah. Me? Yeah, okay. yeah. No,
1: you do, right? You. Uh, I mean, you're very and I, good and I at
0: smile. And yeah, I, that's and right. I,
1: but that's what human rights wine. is about. That's all <laughs> it's about: is social inclusion, more equal societies, less less uh, inequality, uh, more dignity for everyone. For people who are just playing by the rules, you know, they go to school, they get a job, they should have a good life.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, just to sort of come in on on that, and to say, I think also Leilani, what you actually have offered. Um, is is a big picture view as well I mean, human rights is, is, is a really important framing, but, you know, you were able to sort of draw it together in a big picture view. And I think the real difficulty that housing activists have is that they're so disparate, you know, and they're so tied into local struggles. And it's really, really valuable to, to, to be able to sort of draw it all together. And, you know, human rights is, is one um, aspect. Another aspect which just came to mind, actually, is you were talking about Berlin and the success, Successes in Berlin, which actually have been rooted in um, uh, drawing, drawing it together with the public interest in legislation. Um, in in Berlin's post-war legislation and therefore um, actually what the activists um, are asking for has a a legal basis in law and around the world the public interest actually has played that role in so many post-war legislative frameworks and I wonder if alongside the the human rights framing you know we can try to to find a, a way of actually allowing that public interest discourse to Come back in as well
0: I think what' has actually happened now in many places is that people go out on the streets and they fight against with tear gas you know and all this, and what they ask for is a new constitution, you know a better legislation in Chile i mean they are that's like one of the most interesting things cooking right now what they they elected a new assembly to create a new constitution and and it's so now everybody is talking about how should we run this country? What should the rules be?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the winning combination, frankly. Uh, And I think that legislative piece is fundamental um, because it's so much more difficult to dismantle legislation than it is to dismantle a policy or just some program or something like that. I would say the bulk of what I get asked these days especially very recently, is to talk about the role of legislation, what would the right to housing look like in legislation? Does it have to be in a constitution? Can it just be a kind of legislated right to housing? All sorts of, I'm I'm quite surprised and very happy for this. And it is activists, grassroots activists mobilizing who are thinking, okay, how can we how can we really make change here? What would structural change actually look like? I mean, I get it from others as well. national human rights institutions. Most countries have them. Um, they've started I've starting to get quite a few requests. New Zealand is on a big housing inquiry. The, the Human Rights Commission there is on a big housing inquiry and they're looking at legislation. So I'm really starting to feel this. Spain, of course, has been in discussion for a long time. Many, many countries. Um, and of course, we look to the South Africans who use legislation, their beautiful, beautiful constitution, which enshrines the right to housing and many other social and economic rights. The activists, it's like, it's just how they do activism. They always use legislation. It's pretty cool. Mm.
0: And I know you have a meeting you have to run to uh so do, do you want to some send some final words out to us and to the listeners
2: yeah i mean i think sort of my the the biggest point that i want to make and you know i've i've been thinking about it a lot and actually leilani what we were talking about last week as well in in the meeting um you know it's really around discourse and language and the creation of a common sense And we have a common sense in the UK, which we've had now, you know, for the last generation around housing. And it has begun to be chipped away at. And that's a really, really positive thing. And, you know, as awful and as tragic Uh, a, a seismic event like Grenfell was actually that really started to undermine that common sense so we are in quite a good place to reframe the whole debate around housing and associated with that we have to reframe the whole debate around offshore money money laundering tax havens. It's not about offshore and shell companies and tax. It is, as you say, Frederick, about a social contract and having a society which operates, uh, you know, with a a proper constitution. Well, Britain getting a proper constitution is another matter. But, you know, (laughs) it's about having a society which really, you know, is is underpinned by a social contract.
0: So that was Anna Minton. And she, well, she ends up and say that we need to reframe the whole debate around housing? Well, that's something you are doing with your human rights directives, Leilani?
1: Yeah, but she goes further, right? She says that we actually need to move away from um, just trying to look at tax and um, finance and island nations where money is being stored offshore and and actually look at the social contract and whatever happened... To the social contract which i think frederick is something that you've been interested in for a long time now
0: I, I am interested in the social contract because it's the social contract is is nothing that is written but it's kind of deeply in our bodies in some way it's like the rules we follow to be able to be part of a society and that's something we also teach our kids you know work hard study hard be good citizens and there will be a chance for you and then people quite often see the guys driving by in the very expensive cars are the ones who have been breaking the rules so it's it's uh, and that I think that provocation is very it's something that many people see around the world and feel and that makes them really really angry
1: mm-hmm. well it's it's worse right because it's the guys driving around in those luxury vehicles who are breaking the rules, but it's governments that are enabling them. And yeah. I think people are really angry at their governments for letting it go or supporting it in some cases.
0: Yeah, and we could see that, I mean, Trump was lowering the taxes for for this, the, the riches exactly. in the world. And you have seen a lot of tax incentives going towards the these real real estate investment trust i mean the the worst speculators are actually giving tax incentives exactly
1: exactly it's uh, it's enough to make people pretty angry
0: yeah and 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 people's anger takes many directions some of them are really sad and mm. xenophobic and so on And and others are more constructive, but still, I mean, it's it's you can understand why people are so angry.
1: Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, Frederick, it is related, of course, to human rights. I mean, that's the point of human rights is to keep governments in check so that they don't allow this stuff to happen so that people can have access to healthcare and education and housing and Mm. et cetera. Right.
0: Yeah. So, friends, if you heard about, you know, Pushback Talks, you can also help us out on uh, supporting the podcast. Isn't that a great idea, Leilani? It's wonderful. Absolutely.
1: (laughs) They can go to our Patreon account and become a Patreon.
0: You can be a Patreon. And if you haven't seen Push the Film, you can always find it on pushthefilm.com. And if you want to talk to me or Elani, you can find us on Twitter and other platforms and just put us a question. Uh, we, we are there under our own names, no secrets, uh, funny things. We are Sweet. actually very straightforward people, honest with big hearts <laughs> and, and funny hairdos. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself. Yeah, I yeah, know, <laughs> mine is a little bit crazy. I'm actually going to the hairdresser on Saturday before i go to france i'm going to france to a documentary film conference where i'm going to meet a lot of european broadcasters that hopefully will be supporting my new film project it's uh, it's a hassle but it's uh, it i mean the hassle is happening then in la rochelle france so it's uh, it's be uh, worse it can be worse
1: yes well good luck with that frederick I hope you get lots, lots of support for your new film.
0: Thank you. Yes, I need it. So, And, I, and this autumn coming up, uh, we should talk more about your human rights directives, but I, we can also start talking a little bit more about my, my new film. Mm, fantastic. Oh, yeah.
1: Happy to do that. Okay.
0: That's good. Because we are the filmmaker and advocates. We are. We are. So have a great day. Dive into the blue
1: happy summer
0: happy summer ciao